You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello, Life Group Leaders, and welcome to the uh, Life, Life Group Leader Podcast for Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leaders. Uh, this is the week of February the 5th, and we're glad to be with you again to uh, talk about the next lesson in the Transforming Truths curriculum. For this particular week, it's the Trinity, and we're going to be talking about Jesus and the Incarnation. Uh, great reality, uh, amazing truth that uh, we, we have the opportunity to unpack in our life groups, and we're going to talk about that. Before we get going and we begin talking about some lesson helps, want to once again kind of give you a few updates and announcements uh, as we move forward. And so my man Paul here is going to start us off. Yeah, the first thing is we had a great Group Connect time. A lot of people signed up to get more information on groups. And we'll likely be visiting groups this coming week and some subsequent weeks to follow. So we strongly encourage you to continue the follow-up with the people that came to your group. You should have their contact info. Send them an email. Don't hesitate to call. And just make these people feel valued. Uh, because we want them in groups and we want to grow together with them. And then likewise, not just the new visitors, but even some of your fringe members that may not have shown up for Group Connect, keep going after those people. At one point, they were in a group, saw it as valuable for whatever reason. Um, groups are like the first thing to be jettisoned when we need them the most through our struggles. So reach out to these people because they're likely in need of what you're offering within your life group. Thank you, Paul. And also I want to mention about uh, our annual meetings that we do every year in the springtime. We actually call them spring meetings. Many of you have taken part in those in the past. So we're going to be doing that again, obviously. It's a time for us to sit down with, with you as a life group leader and to uh, talk about your group. We're going to have some time uh, where we're going to uh, schedule those coffees and those lunches here over the course of, of February uh, leading up to the summertime. So between now and the summer, we hope to meet with every single leader as possible. So we'd hope that once you get that email from us, that you would um, really jump on that and schedule a time for us to be together. Uh, we really look forward to that, and we hope that uh, you will as well. And we had a great the- theological roundtable meeting Wednesday night at 6. We talked about the doctrine of God and the attributes of the Father, and then the Trinitarian Godhead in general. This is just a great time for life group leaders to share with one another, to talk about group life, what's going on, and for us to share the struggle with one another and dig into some interesting theological content. So I encourage you to become a part of those if you can. And the last one is about the Immersion Conference upcoming this this Friday night. Um, it's February the 10th. Dr. Russell Moore will be with us and He'll be talking about some cultural engagement and, you know, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus and the culture in which we live today, which may be opposed to a lot of the things that we believe in. And uh, how do we how do we live in, in the culture like that, uh, speaking the truth in love? And so it's going to be a good time uh, for us all to be together. We've got a lot of folks that have already registered. I think we've got close to 300 at this point, maybe even more. And so it'll be a great time for you to come and, and, and truly learn. So I would invite you, you know, to come. Obviously, we're, we're providing it free for our life group leaders. So you just need to register. Call Melissa Hayes, mhayes at brentwoodbaptist.com to kind of get your name on the list. It'll be a good fellowship event. Uh, some groups are actually going together. Uh, some 
folks are kind of rallying a few folks in their groups and leaders to go and participate. It's going to be a great time. So looking forward to that. Hope you can make it to our immersion conference with Dr. Russell Moore on February the 10th. Paul's going to talk a little bit about some best practices, Paul. Yeah, and I think the Russell Moore thing is going to be a great time. Uh, We always talk about the practicality of some of the cognitive stuff we do with theology and such, and ethics is just where the rubber meets the road, where we're living out the faith. So it's going to be a great night, and I highly recommend being there, and we'll be there, so we'd love to talk to you. Last week, we talked about the end in mind and, and what are we going after? Who is the, what's the ideal disciple look like? And, and how are we, how are we thinking to make our people that way? So this week, I wanted to reaffirm that and talk about how we understand discipleship as a process. Sanctification is a journey toward looking more like Christ. And certain questions need to be answered and identified as you go along this journey in order to plan it well in order to evaluate, be self-critical and introspect on your progress. So those four questions cover identity, purpose, location, and then significance. So the first question obviously is, who am I? Who am I now? And then obviously, who is Christ calling me to be? So purpose, why am I here? So if I am a certain way, or if I believe myself to be a certain thing in Christ, then what's my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? location? Where am I on this journey? Am I still a spiritual child where I need to be fed heavily by someone else because I can't stand on my own two feet yet? That's not a bad thing. That's part of growth. But where am I? And then lastly, where am I going? What are my next steps? So if I am still radically dependent on someone else for my maturing, then what do I do to become an adult myself? If I've never discipled someone, What do I do to learn under a mentor what discipleship is and then to go disciple others by myself? So who am I? Why am I here? Where am I? And what are my next steps? If you're answering these questions for your group leaders, I think you're you're doing them a great service and you're helping them along in their sanctification. That's good. Good, Really good questions for, you know, and I would say even as you sit down with people in your life group and you've got those questions in your mind as you're talking with them and perhaps even assessing how they're doing in their walk with Christ as leaders, you know, that's one of the things we need to be concerned with, not just necessarily teaching lessons every, every week, but, but how are they walking with Jesus? You know, are you seeing fruit, uh, being manifested in their life? Are they, are you seeing not just behavior modification, but are they truly loving Jesus more? Is that being fleshed out in the way they live, the way they interact with their spouse, the way they parent their children? Uh, the way that they interact at work, uh, are are they uh, are, are they living as a disciple? Are you seeing that actively in their lives? And and if there's if you don't see that, then obviously prayer is where you begin. But then you also um, have those conversations and you help them to kind of unpack those things. And so I think you know it's it's really important as life group leaders that more than anything we are shepherding, we're walking alongside people, helping them to grow beyond just giving them a biblical worldview through scripture, which is increasingly obviously important, but also helping them to kind of navigate life's challenges and helping them to be more like Jesus every single day, to be more like Jesus today than they were yesterday. And part of our jobs as leaders is to help them to do that. So good word. Thanks, Paul, for that. Let's jump into the lesson time. Okay, we're we're in lesson four, chapter four this week. Uh, Last week we began... uh, some lessons on the Trinity. Last week we talked about God, who is God, 
specifically the first person of the Trinity. And this week, we're talking about Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Uh, one of the doctrines that we see explicitly in the Scriptures, old and new, is this idea that Jesus Christ was one person with two natures, that he was fully divine, and that is, he's possessing all the attributes of divinity, but also fully human, possessing all the attributes of humanity as well. So it's a wonderful reality that can oftentimes be difficult to comprehend fully. But we see that in Scripture um, in various places. I just want to highlight just a few. You may even want to uh, read these or maybe highlight a few of these in your group time uh, whenever you guys meet with your group. Uh, obviously, one that's very common is John 1, 14, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. John says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, John says. We also see in Isaiah 53, Isaiah, Old Testament prophet, prophesying of the Messiah, and he alludes to this incarnation. He says, that uh, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. He goes on to talk about how he was, um, you know, uh, his by his wounds we were healed. He was bruised and he was beaten and uh, so you can kind of use Isaiah 53 as, a, as some, uh, some also some, some scriptures to talk about the incarnation. And then in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, Paul the Apostle, he says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Again, Paul alluding to uh, Jesus Christ as being manifested in the flesh. And in our verse today, uh, we, uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 5. I'm sorry, that's not right. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And it's this wonderful hymn uh, that Paul writes about. Uh, Paul, not Paul the Apostle, but Paul sitting here with me, Paul <laughs> the Wilkinson. Talk to us a little bit about some things we learn about this particular poem or song. Yeah, when you read it in the Greek, and even you'll see it in certain translations, the HCSB for one, it'll be indented differently than the rest of the text. And that usually indicates something like a hymn, poem, some kind of doxology or a simple uh, memory type phrase for an, for an oral culture how they would walk around with. And that's no different than this passage. Um, most scholars seem to think it was a hymn of some sort, uh, generally broken down um, in terms of theological content. You see, uh, you see a rhythmic quality in the Greek language where these words rhyme and they flow together. Similar endings, you get unique words that don't show up in other places within Paul's letter, and you just get general some motifs around that. Um, the the three breakdowns of the three high theological points are the main verbs of the of the key pattern. He did not consider. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. So not consider, empty, and humbled are sort of the common thread that run through and connect the, the rest of this phrase. And it would have been something that the early church would remember, would carry around with them as they went out, they sat down, they joined to eat and went about their lives. 
they would remember these sorts of things going through their head and this theology would impact their life and their boldness for their faith. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be taking a look at this week in our groups. And then we're just going to have some high, highlight a few things and then maybe even talk a little bit more about uh, this this whole idea of the incarnation, uh, that Jesus is fully divine, fully human. Uh, you can also be referred to, I'll give you a, a seminary word that you can kind of impress the people in your groups with. It's also called the hypostatic union of Christ. But anyway, I'm going to read this and uh, and then we'll unpack a few things. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11. Paul writes, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man, in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Paul, as we read these these passages here in Philippians, what are some of the things that stick out to you that would be really, really key for us to unpack in our groups this week? And not only hypostatic union, but one of my favorite theological terms, and it's a generic term, is condescension. Mm -hmm. And you see that happening with Christ here, where being in the very nature of God, whatever essential properties and attributes make a being divine as the Father is, as the Spirit is, Jesus had all that, nevertheless, uh, makes himself nothing, um, takes takes the nature of a servant rather than the nature of the ruler of the entire universe like we see in Revelation coming into the throne room throne room and getting the deed scroll to the universe. Well, here he comes as servant to, to redeem a particular people, humbling himself, obedience to the point of death. So here you have, I mean, you think to the John 1 passage, you have the word and, and creation, and then um, over everything, all things are made through him, all things are made for him, and then that, now you have this one humbly being obedient, and no one can take these attributes and qualities away. Um and yet Jesus gladly lays down his rights as divine in order to come be with his people. It's a truly unique teaching within the Christian faith. So right from the beginning in verse 6, um, the Apostle Paul writes, who existing in the form of God. And that word in the Greek form is a word for morphe. Talk a little bit about that, uh, about about the significance of that. Yeah, I think it gets at the essential features of divinity. So to be divine, just some, when we learned two of them last week, omnipotence, omniscience would be a part of that. Um, certainly uh, moral, essentially moral in nature, uh, creator, all those things that make a being divine and worthy of worship. The son, Jesus, had those in the very same likeness as the father. All, all of the names and traits and attributes we read about in the Old Testament all that is Jesus as well. I think one of the things that, that can be confusing, uh, Paul, is this, you know, the fact that, you know, we we agree, we understand, and we see it in Scripture that Jesus uh, had all the attributes of divinity, 
and all the attributes of humanity at the same time uh, while he walked on the earth. And yet he emptied himself of, of some of those divine attributes. What, what does that mean? I mean, we, we say that he had all the divine attributes, but then he willfully emptied himself. How, how do we unpack that? How do we, how do we understand that for ourselves? But at the same time, how do we communicate that to people in our life groups this week? And what are some of the things that might be important for us to discuss as we, as we refer to these things? I think it's an incredibly difficult teaching. A lot of ink has been spilled over it. Um, and, and the further we get from scripture, cause it may not be revealed explicitly, the more you get into human speculation. So you'll get varied opinion on it, all of which I think can fit the text to some extent. I think a key for me in trying to understand that is the shift we see from verse six to seven, um, or even the first part of six versus the second part of six. So you see the very form of God, which we just said were essential properties, and then did not consider equality with God. I think that's a shift to something other than essential attributes in nature. I think that has to do more with divine rights and what's owed Jesus as the most valuable prize in the universe. He gives all that up to become human, to actually grow in a body that decays and suffers and gets sicker or whatever else the case may be. So I think a lot of times we come to this text thinking only in terms of attributes because that's where the beginning of six leads us and we stay there throughout the rest of it. But I think the text has a little shift in itself where equality means something different. It means something more functional in terms of rights than essential attributes. That's a good point to make. I think that's a great way to approach it. I think that's absolutely true. And, it, you know, in our culture today, you know, let's think about it. In our culture today, we're so consumed at least our culture is, so consumed about this whole idea of rights. These my basic human rights. Hey, don't don't infringe upon my rights. <laughs> We're all we seem to always be very cognizant of our rights, and yet we see here the Son of God, God the Son, who had all rights to worship and lordship that the Father had, emptying himself of those rights to take on human flesh. And I really you know it, it um, if you look at the beginning of verse two I'm sorry, of chapter 2 in Philippians, you know, the Apostle Paul is writing, uh, beginning in verse 3, says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he moves right into this passage about Christ's humility and exaltation, uh, who had every right of the Godhead, and yet uh, denied himself those rights to take on flesh. And so, so I think the thing that we should consider here is in light of the fact that the God of the universe uh, denied himself some of the rights that he deserved and was owed to condescend to become human. What does that mean for us as Christ followers? How do we then deny ourselves some of the rights that we might have for the sake of others? Um, I think that would be a really, maybe even an important thing to maybe unpack and talk about in your groups, especially as we think about the gospel, as we think about unbelievers, as we think about lost people. You know, what are some of the rights that we have that we should empty of ourselves so that we could, quote, be incarnate, perhaps in the same way that Jesus was? Yeah, it's a crucial truth. And if your people come away understanding that, then I think you've done a great job for them uh, this week. 
And as Jay was talking about that, I just keep looking at verse seven and the idea of a servant taking on the nature of a servant. So has these qualities, essential qualities of divinity. Now he has these essential qualities of being a servant and no one can take this from Jesus. He willfully lays it down. And I, I just think you're spot on with that's how we're called to be as we relate to our people. We see the savior washing the feet of the disciples, uh, the divine ruler of the universe, washing the feet of the disciples. And um, and we need to live that same kind of life for the people in our sphere of influence. So if you take a look at, so I think something else worth maybe even mentioning right here at the beginning of the passage, uh, verse 6, uh, Apostle Paul's writing, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. My, the version that I'm reading out of the, the Holman Standard uh, says, something to be used for his own advantage. Paul, talk to us a little bit about about that sentence, that structure, that, that whole idea of significance of grasp. Yeah, I mean, literally the term is usually used in the Greek to mean just to go out and pick something up, to reach out and grab a thing. And I think what it's getting at here is uh, is part of the tension we have between the Trinity and then the humanity of Christ and saying... Um, is the father and the son really equal if, if um, Christ didn't consider this something to be had and not something to be grasped? So theologians have made a distinction between their being, who they are, and then what they do. So there's a functional subordinates in the son where we, we see Christ in Gethsemane. Um, this is going to be bad to experience sin on the cross. If there's another way, let it be. However, your will be done, not mine. It's not that the father has more value, has a better character, or is a greater being than the son. It's that the son has functionally put his will underneath that of the father. And that's why obedience just leaps out at me from verse 8 there. Um, and I think that's what that's what it's getting at. So what's not to be grasped is this idea of avoiding, avoiding the suffering and experience of sin as he takes it on for the entire world. Um, so he just functionally submits his will to the Father for the sake of the creation. Paul, what are some common heresies uh, that might be worth mentioning um, in Life Group this week? Uh, you know, it might be helpful to kind of get a sense of Christian history around this whole idea of the incarnation and the idea of, of Jesus being fully divine, fully human possessing all the attributes of both humanity and divinity in one person, one person, two natures. Uh, what are some of the, maybe the, the most popular heresies that, that have been talked about over the course of the, of, of, of church history? And unfortunately, some of them are still around. It's just a weird and strange truth in the history of theology and the history to trying to come to understand this faith. It's so radical what Christ was and did that it took a lot to think through it. And people really struggled with it. And people posited different theories and ideas and faithful people throughout history tried to be faithful to the text and to the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus in the writings they left us. And it really is a benefit to look at some of these heresies because you can then say, here's how we rightly think about Christ. And it has significance, as we'll discuss in a, in a bit, for how we understand our salvation and so forth. So a big one that's kind of a hybrid, it may be partially a Trinitarian heresy, but I like to include it in incarnational heresies as Arianism. And that's the idea that Jesus wasn't the same stuff or essential properties as a father. It's what I was just talking about. Instead of a functional um, obedience and a functional submission of his will, that Christ really wasn't the same thing 
that the father was. That's Arianism, and we definitely want to reject that. They have the same being. Adoptionism, uh, this one I think can you'll hear sometimes running around in modern times, and that's that Jesus was just a really great man, no different than any other man. And then at his baptism, most likely, uh, the father said, that's my guy, that's the guy I'm going to use as Messiah. But he's not the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's not the incarnate Lagos. So that's adoptionism. Apollinarianism, um, this guy posited that Jesus was essentially a hybrid. So it was kind of like um, there's just the human body provided itself as an indwelling for the divine mind. Uh, Docetism, this was a heresy who really struggled with the idea of having the Son of God and having a divine being die. So what they said is he just appeared to be physical. He wasn't actually physical. So Jesus didn't have a material body like we did. And then lastly, Nestorianism. And this is that Jesus was two persons rather than um, rather than a single person. So what we want to say, Jay alluded to it earlier with the hypostatic union, two natures, one person. Nestorianism essentially does it the other way around, where there's two persons in one nature. Hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. Those might be some, some good um, some heresies to maybe even mention in your life group this week. Maybe write them up on the board or put them on a, on a tear sheet or something like that and ask them to uh, maybe unpack some of these and maybe even where we see these in, in our culture today in some areas. Yeah, that's right. And um, and you can find those so just so you don't have to hunt them down on your own. Uh, if you go to the adults.journeyonleadership.com page, Foundations Curriculum, look at the teacher help for that day, then there's web links to um, each of those for you to bring up. And it's important to know what we're not saying so that we can articulate well who, who our Savior is. So we we believe as followers of Jesus and Christians that uh, that Jesus was indeed fully God and fully man. But why, Paul? I mean, what, why, why is the incarnation necessary? Why, why was it important that Jesus came as a man to redeem mankind? Uh, and I know it's a big, heavy, that's a heavy question. <laughs> that is a big one to cr- cram in here in a minute and a half. But in my South Carolinian vernacular, uh, paraphrasing the early church fathers is you can't redeem what you ain't got. So if there is no humanity in Christ, it's really tough to understand how he actually redeems human nature. Um, it's tough to understand suffering for a, a divinity who is spirit if there's no material self there. And I think in terms of Romans 3 as well, where Paul talks about um, God delaying. So the issue, well, God, why aren't you taking out these Romans and, and thwarting the enemies of Israel? And Paul says that uh, God delayed so that at the right time he could become both the just and the justifier. So he could vindicate his name by punishing sin, but he had to punish that sin on the singular sinless God-man, Jesus. So in that way, he was also the justifier, not only justifying his name. So it's essential that if Christ is going to redeem humanity, if he's going to undo, in a sense, what Adam has done in rebellion and reconcile us back to the Trinitarian Godhead, then he needs to be what we are, and what we are is human. That's right. Christ redeems what he takes on. He redeems us. He redeems our flesh, our sin nature, uh, by taking on flesh like he did, the perfect God-man. Amazing reality, amazing truth for us. Um, it's going to be a, a fun to talk about these things in, uh, uh, in our groups this week. Uh, Paul, what's 
what's the stake here? What's the so what? You know, what are some things that really drill down on in, in group time this week as we unpack this this whole idea of who is Jesus? Yeah, I think what's at stake is that we can't really understand our salvation and redemption if we don't get the incarnation and the person of Christ correct, biblical. Uh, you end up in one of these heresies where you have a divine being who can't really die somehow claiming to have redeemed people, which doesn't make a lot of sense, or you just get some man who was extra special because God chose him, well, then how is any different than any of the prophets in the Old Testament or anyone else? There's something unique about Christ that he's not just prophet, he's not just priest, he's not just king. He's all three of those things in one. So again, the Romans 3, he's the just and the justifier. He's the one who lives a sinless life in order to redeem the humanity that rebelled against him. And, and if we don't understand the person of Christ in his in his full divinity and in his full humanity, then I think we're selling him short on his sacrifice and we're selling um, him short on his redemption of us. And if we don't get that right, then the so what is how do we live the incarnational life that you alluded to earlier? How do we live as servants if we don't have the model of the second person of the Trinity, God, man, becoming flesh to redeem his people? How are we then supposed to go out and, and redeem his creation as his instruments? So this this particular lesson this week is very gospel-centered. Mm. Uh, it's about Jesus, right? The Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so, you know, I, I think it would be really important to, and I think it's important any time that we gather together to really, to really lift high the, the gospel message. But partic- particularly this week, uh, to really lift up Jesus as Savior and spend some time, you know, unpacking the gospel with your people. I, we can't assume that everyone in our groups, they may, be in a, they may have been in church for many, many years, but we can't assume necessarily that everyone that's sitting in one of the chairs in your classroom or in your living room has a personal relationship with Jesus. They may know a lot about him, but do they truly know him? And this would be a great opportunity to really unpack the gospel and to um, and to present the gospel to your people this week, present the message. And what I would say is on the back part of the, of the travelogue, uh, the very last page of the travelogue is actually on the back cover. It gives, uh, it unpacks the gospel. And so you can take a look at that as you're preparing your, your, your lesson this week to maybe uh, spend a little bit of time just going through the, the, the basic uh, principles of the gospel and, and the importance uh, of this message to, to our lives. Um, it would be important to do that for sure. So, um, Paul, anything else that uh, related to this whole idea of the Incarnation? I think I want to second everything you just said. We're going to do soteriology in a few weeks, which is the study of salvation proper. So getting the person of Christ correct this week to sort of tee that lesson up is going to be a big deal to to get them right thinking about who Jesus was. Hmm. Well, once again, as always, we're praying for you and we, we, we do pray for you and we want, we want you to, uh, man, just teach out of the overflow. You know, as you spend time with the Lord this week, really, you know, you know, thinking through this this theological truth and allowing it to to marinate in your own heart and life, 
that again you would your eyes would be open and your heart would be full with this knowledge and with this truth and that you would just teach teach your people with, with passion and with with uh, with uh, a lot of enthusiasm about the importance of this so we're praying for you and we hope you have a great group time when you guys meet this week Paul anything left to say let it be so <laughs> let it be so amen thanks to God thanks guys for taking the time to listen today look forward to hearing about how how it goes in your groups this week see you next week